Welcome to episode 42 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store. You can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share them with somebody who you think might need to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. As in previous episodes, Shauna and I thought it necessary to not only highlight the research that's being done, but how suicide has impacted the lives of those who served. Today's episode highlights another guest who has direct lived experience of attempted suicide. Shauna? Yes, Colonel Rob Swanson retired from active duty after serving nearly 35 years. Since retirement, he's been heavily involved in the Fight for Each Other suicide prevention program in Hawaii. Prior to retirement, Colonel Swanson was the Chief Weather Strategic Plans and Interagency Integration Division at Headquarters U.S. Air Force in Washington, D.C. Colonel Swanson is a military leader who has experienced times of suicidal crisis. As a suicide attempt survivor, he has a deep personal connection to this work. As a senior leader in the Air Force, he has had the opportunity to lead manage and motivate some of the finest people this nation has to offer during the 34 years he wore the uniform. He said this, we cannot erase the stigma of seeking help if we are not willing to be open and vulnerable about times in our own lives when we need a helping hand, not unlike going to a dock to get a broken bone set. I found this interview to be full of practical insights. I agree. And I, and this is something I think that Colonel Swanson will talk to anybody about, but I'm glad he was able to spend some time with us. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. One of the things that compelled me about your story, Rob, is that you were very open about the fact that as a company grade officer, you experienced not one, but two suicidal crises, and then went on to have a full and, and even successful Air Force career. Yeah, uh, it, being open about it, uh, it was something that came later on in the career. One of the things that I noticed was the fact that, quite frankly, we had senior leaders that also had issues in their lives. We've lost general officers to suicide. And, and I realized that we try to put this mystique on these higher ranking individuals that nothing ever goes wrong in their life when in all actuality, we're all human beings. And if we want to remove the stigma of talking about suicide, then we have to be able and willing to, to talk about suicide. You know, quite frankly, 50 years ago, someone in your family had cancer. You didn't talk about it. 25 years ago, someone in your family had AIDS, nobody knew. And we're curing both of them now. So maybe this is one approach that, that just will, will certainly work. Yeah, I was a prior enlisted guy, hard charging all the way through my Air Force career, company grade officer. I'm working on my PhD and everything went to hell in a handbasket. Now, for a prior enlisted guy to go on and make colonel is absolutely unheard of. For a prior enlisted guy who ended up derailing his career and almost didn't get promoted to major and go on and make colonel is a testament not only to, quite frankly, the hard work that I put in, but also the support that I received from my friends, family, and coworkers and their willingness to, to allow me to put that behind me and, and give me trust and faith in what I brought to the fight 
and support me in my endeavors as well. So the system worked for me. Yeah, uh, first attempt was 1998. The second one was 1999. One of the things that I noticed was that it did predate uh, a lot of the work that we've done. Uh, mental health has come a long way in the, in the military and how they approach it. I didn't seek help right away. I did make the attempts. Change is a funny thing. Change is one of those things that you don't do it unless the cost of remaining the same is higher than the cost of changing. And I realized that one, I wasn't going to die, which is a good thing. But two, that I, I was about to lose everything that I cared about. And suddenly a, a, a good man opened a door and said, everything you love, the military, serving, et cetera, it's right through that door. You just got to walk through it. You just got to step through. And uh, so that was phenomenal in terms of changing the script and going on to get help. I will say one thing, when it comes to treatments, a lot of times there's the temptation to use medication. And I think that for some people, it's an absolute lifesaver. For others, and, and I put myself in this category, it turned out to mask my symptoms. It didn't give me the ability to really go and deal with the underlying issues. And frankly, they were messing with different types of medicines and dosages leading up to my second attempt. And I'm not 100% sure that didn't have a role because the circumstances weren't anywhere near, well, they were different, but they weren't quite as bad as the first time around. And so I'd be interested to hear from your point of view, having been over these past 20 years experiencing this personally, going through the treatment and seeing this trend in the military and now as you're retired out of the military, are you seeing things change in relation to military and veteran suicide? I'm seeing things change in terms of the types of tools that they make available. Part of it's a cultural shift. We used to have the suck it up military attitude and we had a lot of senior leaders that they just didn't get it. And, and I don't blame them. It's just, if you've never been in that dark place, it's hard to envision why somebody would be there. The initial thought is, oh, they're just trying to get out of work or just snap out of it and, and that type of stuff. And now there's more empathy and there's more of a realization that this, this is a real issue. And so the attempt to remove the stigma, things like really making a case for not letting it impact the security clearance, getting that word out, getting the word out that you can go and, and see these people and it's not going to impact your career. A lot of it has to do with erasing the stigma and killing off some of these stereotypes that existed for a good reason. And that's why I said what some of the work that we do is designed to get them over that hurdle. When you're in that dark place, you don't want help. You can say, you can call this number, you can talk to this person, you can do this, not realizing that the people, they're not looking for help. And so how do we bridge that gap? That's the next step. How do we get them to actually want to reach out and get that help before they go and try to take their own lives like I do? And this is actually something that is emerging as a theme. And we've talked about it in, in a number of shows so far now uh, about we're at this place of passive resource offering, as in reach out if you need anything, call me if you need anything, or here's a number for you to get. But the, the impetus for action is on the individual who as you said, when they're in that crisis spot, they're not thinking past the next half an hour or a day or two like that. They don't have the ability to do that. And what you're talking about is getting away from that passive resource offering to reaching out and actively supporting someone and helping them pull through it rather than requiring them to do it themselves. Correct. 
And along those lines, this is where active leadership is extremely important. After I went public, my old boss reached out and he said, Rob, is there anything that I could have done that would have prevented you from doing what you did? And I realized that he'd been carrying a, a load of guilt that didn't belong to him for the last 15 years, which was unfortunate. Now, in my circumstances, I didn't have any signs. At work, I was a different person. I was happy-go-lucky. I could hide my depression better than an alcoholic could hide a bottle of vodka. I was telling jokes, none of the signs. But he knew I was going through a divorce. He knew I was estranged from my kids. He knew I had a tremendous amount of uh, pressure at work. So there were things that he knew, not suicidal, but things that he knew. So when I talk, a lot of times I'll have individuals who will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, I've got this friend. And they'll talk about some of the things their friend is going through and they see it. They just don't know what to do. And they're, they're, they're like, if I tell anybody, then they're going to get mad. And I said, one of the things that we've got to do, we got to know our people. We got to know when they're in crisis. We got to be able to engage. We got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We got to have those conversations. And if worse comes to worse and, and you're really worried, you may lose a friend by going to the first sergeant or going to the commander or going to the chaplain because they may get mad at you and say, you had no right, no reason, but they're still alive. And five years from now, they may come back and thank you, but I would rather have my friend be alive and lose his friendship temporarily, if that's what's necessary, and, and still have them alive. Because if they die, then whether that guilt belongs to you or not, that's something you're gonna carry with you for the rest of your life. An average suicide impacts 150 people in concentric circles around that particular act. And it just leaves a tremendous gaping hole in people's lives. And, and that's what we got to try to eradicate. A colleague at the University of South Alabama, he describes suicide as both common and rare. And that rare, we can go years without having a, anyone in our direct network experience a death by suicide. But it's common in that just about all of us know someone or have been affected with it personally. And so it's this, this complicated thing is it's not like it happens every Wednesday and you get used to doing it. It's just one of these significant life events that you have to prepare for it. Sort of like living in Kansas and you got to deal with the tornadoes eventually. You're not going to have the tornado every day, but you need to know how to do it. Is that sort of what you're talking about? That is certainly part of it. But more than that, if there were a way that we could prevent people from having to deal with it. We talk about that critical 30 seconds, five minutes, 30 minutes, that window and some of the things that we do with the work that we're doing is giving them pause inside that window, giving them something else to think about. With our current suicide prevention programs, a lot of times we don't talk about the impact that it has on friends and family, and we don't talk about our success stories. And that's what some of this work does. The person that's in that dark place, I know for myself personally, I, I convinced myself that the world is a much better place without me. I'm a bad father, I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad officer, I'm a bad student. I'm actually doing the world a favor by checking out. And you don't think about the big gaping hole. You don't, I didn't think about the fact that I had two young sons that would probably have followed me had I, gone, had I ended my life. And so the real no shit, this is the impact that it has had on other people's lives is incredibly important getting into the heads of people who are in that crisis situation, hopefully to help them reach out so other people are not impacted by the actions they may take.
But I think this is an important point that you just referenced there is many people or one of the myths is suicide is a selfish act, but for many service members, it's like they're saving their loved ones from themselves, whether I'm crazy or I'm violent or I may hurt somebody, but it's really more of this is my way of protecting people is defeating the quote unquote enemy. And that's hard when I'm the enemy. Yep. That's exactly right. And, and there are some gaps. Before we started talking, you mentioned that there are gaps in what we're doing right now. What do you see as some of the gaps in how we're addressing suicide of the military population? Okay. Prior to my retirement, we had PowerPoint presentations. We had role-playing exercises. We tended to conflate not only there's depression, then there's suicide and somewhere in the middle is crisis. And so it's not just a a one thing, it's a continuum that you have to address. But like I said, we never really talked about our success stories and we never really talk about the impact on friends and family. Waking up in the hospital, seeing my wife had aged about a thousand years overnight. We have different people who tell different stories about their personal experiences with suicide. One was a, a lady 25 years ago, she watched her hard-charging Marine descend into the the dark place. She saw the sign. She went to the chain of command. They said, let it go or you'll hurt his career. This was 25 years ago. He shot himself in front of her and her son, six-year-old boy. A week later, she found the son in the closet with a rope around his neck, asked him what he was trying to do, and he said he wanted to be with daddy. And 15 years later, he went to be with daddy. She spent 15 years trying to keep her son alive. So one bullet took two lives, took 25 years of her life. And that's the real impact of suicide. And seeing a woman up there that had gone through that much, I'm hoping people in the audience go, wow, I I didn't realize and have something like that give them pause. And again, this is something that is emerging, has come from a couple of different guests, is we need to listen to the survivors. We need to listen to those whose lives have been directly impacted by suicide, not those of us who may be addressing it in a clinical setting or even researchers who may be dealing with it theoretically, but actually talking to the survivors, like that extremely heartbreaking story you just told, but also, as you said, the success stories, the survivors like yourself who survived an attempt And not only survived, and not to be pithy, not only survived, but thrived and went on and and lived an even better life after. Correct. That's, like I said, the the main theme for some of the work that I do. One, it can happen to anybody. Prior enlisted, hard charging, company grade officer. Two, it always gets better. And three, the tools that they have available work. Since my attempt, I've gone on, I was promoted three more times. I finished up a PhD. I went and got another MBA. I've run over 30 marathons. They said I would never be able to run again based on what happened, and I proved them wrong. I did get divorced, but I am married to a wonderful lady for the last 15 years. She runs marathons with me. I'm retired, living in Hawaii. I drive around on weekends in a 1965 Corvette Stingray. It's just all of the things that I have had the opportunity to do I've been able to lead, manage, and motivate people for the next 20 years after that attempt. I went to Afghanistan, and I spent, in part, my time doing meteorological support for the war. But the other thing I did is I helped them with the Aerostat program. I was running the Aerostat deployment program. 
Those are those balloons with cameras on them that they fly to keep people alive. And because of the work that I did while I was there, people went home and coached that might have otherwise have gone home in cargo. That's what I was able to do because I survived. And people need to see that. They need to realize that everybody has dark moments in their life. They got to be able to see that it always gets better past that dark place. And hopefully when they're thinking about it, they remember that crazy old colonel that stood up on stage and talked about not only being able to survive, but thriving and the way their life turned out and realized that they have the same opportunity if they can just get past it. And one phone call might be the difference between this sucks and everything's getting better. And one of the things is I, and many of my leaders, it's always about improving your foxhole, right? When I was in the military, it's always about making the place that you fall into better. And this is what I'm hearing from you. It's as if you, retired Colonel Rob Swanson, is trying to speak into that young Captain Rob Swanson and say, hey, buddy, you don't know how good life is going to be this many years forward. And you're hoping to catch some young company grade officer is somebody who was exactly like you at that point today to tell them that their life is going to be just as good in 25 years as well. Yeah. And and you bring up a good point. And that's one of the reasons that we have different people with different stories from different perspectives, because my story will resonate with some and not others. Donna's story will resonate with some and not others. But what we're hoping is that there will be people out there in the audience and they will identify and resonate with certain parts of the different stories. And hopefully because of the way we present, it is a memorable presentation. And I've heard that from from multiple people that like this is the most memorable suicide prevention training we've ever had, that they remember, that they get that message. We don't, when we put out, like you said, the passive, if you want help, call this number. Here's the suicide prevention talk line and everything else. But we don't even say, call this number and, and life can get better. We say, if you're hurting or if you're in a crisis, call this number. Let's talk about some of the benefits of calling that number and, and, and reaching out and getting that kind of help. One of the things we're trying to do with this series is what actionable steps you're taking action. You took action in your own recovery. Absolutely. It's seeking the treatment and not just stopping at the one treatment, continuing on and taking action about being public with your story. That's one of the things we go beyond awareness. We got to go beyond whatever the numbers are. What do you recommend people do when it comes to taking action for themselves in their personal lives to address suicide? Certainly, we all have our coping mechanisms. We all have our resiliency. We can certainly concentrate on wellness in terms of physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all of those things that create a more resilient person. But if you suffer from depression or you're having issues, if you're sad because your dog died, that's okay. If you're sad because you dropped a cup and you broke it and you feel like you're such a failure that every cup you ever touch is going to fall and break, that's an issue. So some of the things that we have with seeking help is arrows in a quiver. It's tools in a toolbox. It's things that allow you to recognize when maybe you're not looking at the world in a realistic fashion that it's distorted and you're taking this all or nothing or or some type of an approach. The work that I did, David Burns' cognitive-based therapy said, here's ways to view the world. 
here's ways to identify whether or not you're seeing it in a realistic fashion, and here's ways to overcome those difficulties and see it for what it is. And putting those tools in my toolbox was a tremendous help. And sometimes when you start going down that dark path again, I can realize that, hey, I've seen this before. I've got the tools to deal with it now. And that's extremely helpful. When I say life is good, I don't mean every day I get up and life is phenomenal and, and the rest. Life still kicks you in the colonies. It does. But having the tools to deal with it, having the resiliency to power through those moments and see things for what they are, that's where it's at. That's where the money's at. Absolutely. And your and you've heard it before, I'm certain, but your courage at speaking out is definitely an example for others. If people want to find out more about some of the work that you're doing, how can they find you or, or connect with your work? First of all, feel free to put my email address on there. And anyone who wants to get in contact, if they hear their show and say, hey, I'd like to get in contact with Rob, put them in touch with me. That's the first answer. I've had emails from strangers out of the blue. I've had one guy reached out and said, because of me, he's going to seek help. And then I got an email from him a year later talking about how great his life had become because of the work that he did. We're looking at possibly turning this program into uh, a nonprofit venture where we can have a, a group of speakers who are available to travel. We do all five bases on Oahu. We've been to Moody. I've gone to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, getting scheduled to go out to uh, Joint Base McGuire, because the more people we can reach, the more seeds that we plant, the more pause hopefully we give people during that time of crisis, and the more stigma we remove from reaching out and seeking help, knowing that one, you can survive and thrive, but two, you can have a good life. We don't have to we don't have to be a society that, that lives in all this separation and depression and the rest. I'll, I'll end with I'm not a professional. I'm not a I am a doctor, but not that kind, not a psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, chaplain or anything else. I'm just an old guy that's got a bunch of been there, done that T-shirts. And if sharing my experience helps anybody, even one person stay on this planet and not impact the rest of their family, friends and coworkers and themselves. It's worth it. It's, it's absolutely worth it. There's some great points, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Much like Master Sergeant Tom Cruise, Colonel Swanson's story is an important one to highlight when discussing suicide in the military-affiliated population. Yes. Colonel Swanson made the point that when people are in a state of crisis, they're not looking for help. This is exactly what I wrote about in Warrior. In a state of crisis, people are often totally disconnected from the people and values that make life worth living. The question that many suicide prevention initiatives ask patients is, how can I come up with a plan to save myself during a time of crisis? This is not a very compelling question for someone whose mind is bent on self-destruction. However, just as we can inoculate ourselves against diseases, we can inoculate ourselves against the idea that our death is a gift to our loved ones. We can do this by formally committing ourselves to the understanding of what is at stake before we are ever in a time of crisis. This is why I've worked to co-develop tools that help set this kind of mindset before a crisis ever develops. One of the tools that Marine Corps veteran Brian Vargas and I co-developed is the Fire Team Accountability Agreement. Here's an excerpt from this tool. 
the Fireteam Accountability Agreement to help cultivate a new mindset about crisis before it ever happens. Not all battles are firefights, and some truths are too important to be left unsaid. We commit to the understanding that suicide at any time of life produces massive collateral damage to those we love. We therefore commit to protecting each other and our families from the emotional devastation of suicide. In signing this agreement, I formally acknowledge that our relationship is a bond that I will honor by reaching out in support in both the peaks and the valleys of life. Moreover, I will provide you with the names and numbers of my fire team, and I grant permission to you to activate any other members of my fire team as needed to support me in staying in the fight. Yeah, I appreciate, obviously, Colonel Swanson's point about the fact is when we're in the midst of a crisis, when we most need the resources, we're least likely to get them. And it puts me in mind of military training is that we don't wait until the moment of action to prepare for the moment of action. We will train and we will train and we will prepare ahead of time so that when we are in the middle of the action, the the battle, if we will, that we don't have to think about what we can do becomes muscle memory. And it's a good point that we don't do that a lot when it comes to suicide prevention. Yeah, we don't have that conversation to set the mindset. We could be doing so much more on that. And it's been a long time dream of mine to get some of the insights in Warrior into places where warriors are shaped and formed early on in their training. Because I've truly seen that the sooner you can get to people with this kind of resourcing, the better they do in the long run. The other thing is I really applaud Colonel Swanson's initiative of hosting speakers with lived experience of suicidal distress who have come through a time of trial and built a wonderful life after a period of crisis. The suicidal mode is a profoundly altered state of consciousness, one that's underwritten by a false logic that our death is a gift to our loved ones. And those who are wired to be warriors have an extra vulnerability when this thought materializes because their mentality is largely shaped by making personal sacrifices for the good of the whole. Having speakers talk about their experiences beyond a time of trial will show that this deceptive line of thinking during a time of crisis is the fundamental lie that drives suicidal behavior for many individuals. And showing that one can come through a time of crisis without losing everything, the position, the respect, the security clearance, the professional opportunities that people often fear losing is a powerful way to have positive impact. I agree. And this goes back to the point of saying that we need survivors, families who have experienced the suicide losses, those who have survived an attempt. Having them as part of the conversation is critically important. And other public health campaigns have done this. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, they have victim impact panels for individuals who have been convicted of a DUI actually have to attend a a victim impact panel to hear how this has impacted them. I remember when I came back from Iraq that it that there were some people from Mothers Against Drunk Driving that actually came out and and not necessarily a scared straight but it's having the the lived experience and putting some stories behind the theories. And and I think it's really important. Yeah, it is. I was in San Francisco at a firearms and suicide conference. And one of the best talks of that conference came from a woman named Carolyn Colley, who is a suicide loss survivor who has lost two brothers to suicide. And she gave a really powerful, compelling talk that really got past everybody's defenses in terms of the data, the statistics. This was a story of real impact. 
And I, I think she's now working with Prevents and hopefully having a voice there. I know she's been somebody who has really been a core member of the TAPS team, the suicide prevention team in terms of sharing her story. And yeah, I think that's critical. Yes. As many voices, as many drum beats as we can have and join together, then hopefully we'll be able to shake the rafters someday. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at federalmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS42, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna's doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chatting online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest episodes. Join us next time for another great conversation. And until then, remember, you're not alone ever.